Welcome to Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written. We are journeying through the book of Ephesians and we have been for the last 13 weeks. This week, lesson number 14, Ephesians in the Heart. This is going to be the culmination of our journey, but by the grace of God, not the culmination of your study of the book of Ephesians. In fact, we trust and hope and pray it is only the beginning. But let's begin our study today with prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for leading us through this study of the book of Ephesians. And thank you for helping us to understand the great major themes of the book, as well as how they apply to our lives today. And we ask that you'll guide us through our last study together. We thank you for doing so. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, here to lead us through our final study is the author of this quarter's Sabbath School lesson, Dr. John McVeigh. He is, of course, the president of Walla Walla University, and we thank you for taking 13 weeks, 14 weeks, in order to lead us through this. And, of course, the much time, the many years that it took you to to study this all through yourself and the guidance of the Holy Spirit and bringing it all together. So we're grateful. And here we are in Lesson 14, our last one together. And uh, and it's a significant one, Ephesians in the heart. Mm. Give, a, give us a little idea of where we're going with this. We, we've, we've seen Paul lead us through some themes. He's talked about unity. He's talked about the church. I should expect that getting to the very end of this, we're, we're going to see a lot of this come together. Sure. Lesson 14 is just a, a retrospective. It's a chance to look back on 13 weeks of studying this grand epistle, uh, this, this great piece of, of literature, this inspired document from Scripture, and to, to ponder it again as a whole and to reflect on our study together. One thing that we can do, Eric, is ask, are there any life texts here? Uh, in, in your study through Ephesians, have, has there been one, two, maybe three passages, maybe brief, maybe a little longer, that have really impacted you, have changed your thinking, have drawn you closer to Christ, uh, have ignited, as Paul was hoping to do for those Ephesian believers, have ignited afresh your, your faith and your confidence in God and in his church and in the mission in which the church is engaged. Uh, this this lesson gives us an opportunity to gather up the manna, if you will, from Ephesians and carefully store it away in our hearts and our minds so that it can be available to us. And there's a lot in this book that that allows us to do that. As we mentioned some weeks ago, you you could read through this book in a fairly short period of time, 45 minutes, maybe less uh, of, of doing that, uh, depending on how quick one, a reader one happened to be. It was meant to be read in, in a church service, as mm-hmm. it were, to, to get some significant points across to those who needed the encouragement in, in their walk. One of the things that, as you've mentioned, Paul is emphasizing here is the significance, the importance of the church. Yes. The role that the church yes. plays. Let's walk through Ephesians a little bit and, and kind of bring back the importance of this theme okay. because Paul spends time, effort, ink, mm-hmm. uh, trying to help us understand this. And, and in the world today, there are a lot of Christians who maybe don't see the significance, the importance of church, as sure. it were. Sure. I'm a spiritual individual. I love Jesus. I'm good, yes. as it were. Yes. But Paul has mm-hmm. a very different take on that, doesn't he? 
Uh, yes, he does. And I think this is a good strategy to review the entirety of Ephesians, to choose a theme. And we could choose a number of different themes, but the, the theme of the church in Ephesians is certainly an appropriate way to review the content of, of this great letter. So let's do that. Let's, let's move through the letter uh, and let's uh, review the theme of the church in Ephesians. Could we start with Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul gives a, a kind of job description for the church? So in chapter 3, verse 10... Uh, Paul writes about the mystery hidden for the ages so that, start of verse 10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Let me read that again. So that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's a kind of job description for the church buried at the heart of the letter there in chapter 3, verse 10. So I would have uh, four questions to to ask you and uh, our listeners about that. What is the essential role of the church according to Ephesians 3, verse 10? Uh, Here in Ephesians 3, verse 10, he says one of the big things that he wants to do is to make manifest the wisdom of God uh, two principalities and powers in heavenly places. So yeah. there, it has a purpose. There is a reason for the church. The, the church is to be an instrument of revelation. Isn't that interesting? An instrument of revealing truth to others. The church is not to be self-serving. It's not supposed to go forth proclaiming a message about itself, but to be God-centered, to, to be proclaiming a message about God the church is an instrument of revelation, not an object of it. Okay? Uh, a second question that I'd have for you. What is the church to reveal? That's to reveal the truth. The truth, and, and it puts it here in some uh, interesting way, doesn't it? The manifold wisdom of God. So that's a, that manifold, that uh, multifaceted wisdom. Uh, will of God. We're, we're to, to manifest the manifold wisdom, I should say, of God. So it's like holding a, a large and beautiful diamond up to the light and turning its facets so that we can see them one by one and the, glint, the light glints off of one and, and then off the other. And, and we are to reveal, to talk about, to share, to illustrate, to personify the multifaceted wisdom of God. What does Paul mean by that? What I think he means in this context, you remember that we're, we're right here in chapter 3 where he's talking about Jews and Gentiles and the makeup of the church out of Jews and Gentiles as part of God's mystery, as part of his plan. So we reveal the multifaceted glimmer of God's wisdom by being the church, by being formed of diverse peoples, uh, by being in agreement and collaboration and community with one another in our diversity, we actually become a source of revelation of the manifold wisdom of God. So this, this manifold wisdom of God is not a two-dimensional, shallow thing, but it, it becomes very real, very deep as we live 
Christ's plan for us. Absolutely. So by its very composition, its unprecedented unity amidst great diversity, the church reveals, exhibits, and illustrates God's grand purpose, Ephesians 1 verses 9 and 10, to unify everything in Christ. So we reveal the manifold wisdom of God. So uh, you, you, of course, know the answer to this question, but it's, it's a startling answer. To whom is the church to reveal this truth? Your neighbors down the street in Ephesus, uh, the church members in that new house church over there in Sincrei, in near Corinth, who are we trying to reveal this to? Well, I think yes, 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 and yes. <laughs> yeah, of course. He, he wants us to reveal this, this truth, this manifold wisdom of God to, to the world. Yes, and but he has a special audience in mind here, doesn't he? Says he says the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places. Isn't that strange? Powerful. That is, we are the we are the prophets, <laughs> and our audience is these manifest these 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 powers in the heavenly places that manifest themselves in heavenly places. We are to bear witness somehow to reveal God's manifold wisdom to them. Uh, a final question isn't so easy because Paul doesn't, direct, doesn't directly address it. For what purpose? Why, why is this the job description of the church? Why are we engaged and involved in this activity and to this particular audience? And uh, to me, if we want to seek an answer there, we have to go to chapter 6 and we have to learn that these powers are malevolent, evil powers that are in competition with Christ and his church, battling Christ and his church. And uh, if we are to, to, to communicate the manifold wisdom of God in establishing the church out of Jews and Gentiles as one new humanity, uh, the, the, the most logical answer for us to come is to the purpose of this is that they would be put on notice that God's grand plan to unite everything in Christ is underway and that they are doomed. Okay? So, again, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, the purpose of God is to unite everything in Christ. And the powers look at this church and they see that it, is be, it has been created and crafted out of diverse elements of humankind Jews on the one hand and Gentiles on the other, and that they are living happily and peacefully and in a, in a, a self-sacrificial, Christ-imitating way. And they say, oops, our time is about up. God's plan is underway. And we get to be a part of that. We get to be a part we of it. We get to be a part of it, which is huge. Yeah. And when Paul uses the word church, mm-hmm. Let's revisit this again because different people have different interpretations of church. Sure, sure. What is what is Paul's what idea of church is Paul trying to get across here? In his earlier letters, the the word ecclesia, we get a lot of English words like ecclesiastical and terms like that from the the Greek word ecclesia is used primarily in Paul's earlier letters to designate individual congregations, the church of Corinth, the churches in Galatia, the, the church here and there in Thessalonica. But in Colossians and Ephesians, that, that meaning shifts, and particularly in Ephesians, the term ecclesia or church means something, 
something bigger and broader than just the individual congregation. Uh, the way I express it sometimes, Eric, is it's the church writ large. Uh, it's the church universal is one way to express it without perhaps inheriting all the theological concepts behind that. But it's the church writ large. He's thinking more broadly and, and more in a cosmic context than just the local congregation. Very helpful in getting a better understanding of the church as it is here in the book of Ephesians. We are in the very last lesson of the last part of our study of the book of Ephesians, and I don't want to let this opportunity slip by you without giving you one more opportunity to get more out of your study of the book of Ephesians, and that is by picking up the companion book to this quarter's Sabbath school lesson. It, of course, as you know by now, is called Ephesians by John McVeigh, and you can pick this up to get deeper more uh, broad, greater depth, more insight into the book of Ephesians by picking up the companion book. Where do you do it? At itiswritten.shop. Again, itiswritten.shop. You can pick this up and continue your study of the book of Ephesians. But our study today is not quite finished yet. We still have one more short segment that we're going to go through as we look at the last part of the last lesson in this quarter, and we'll be right back to do that. Thousands of years ago, on a lonely island, a weathered hand wrote words of divine instruction to the early Christians. One by one, these inspired messages from God admonished, counseled, and encouraged six different churches in the ancient world. Finally, Jesus addressed the seventh and last church, the church of Laodicea. His closing words to Laodicea served as a parallel warning to the church that would exist at the close of earth's history. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. You say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Don't miss the final episode of the Seven Churches of Revelation series, Laodicea. Discover how a broken church can eventually dine with Christ at His table. The Seven Churches of Revelation, Laodicea, brought to you by It Is Written TV. Welcome back to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. We are looking at the very tail end now of our study of the book of Ephesians. And John, I want to spend a little bit of time reviewing some of the great themes, the, the metaphors that Paul has used here in talking about uh, the church and the role of the church in the book of Ephesians. Now, I think many of us know what a metaphor is, but let's. what is Paul doing here in using these, well, these metaphors? Sure. Well, to turn into an English teacher for just a few moments here, if I say to you, uh, uh, people are like wolves, that is not a metaphor. That's a simile. That's a simile or an analogy, isn't it? Uh, but if I say people are wolves, that is people equals wolves, that then forms a metaphor, doesn't it? And so uh, one definition of a, a metaphor that has been provided is that a metaphor is a figure of speech in which we speak about one thing in terms which are seen to be suggestive of another. So to give a, just a little illustration, if you and I are watching 
a group of of younger people out on the basketball court (laughs) playing their hearts out, and someone is getting the three-point baskets one right after another, you might say to me, he is playing hot. So what we're doing there is we're mapping the domain of temperature terms on sports performance, right? We're, We're seeing one thing through terms that are associated with another. And when that same that same person in three minutes goes absolutely cold and starts to miss every one. See, I used the word cold, didn't I? We, we, would, we would use those temperature terms and we'd say, well, he sure is cold now. That's right. So that's, metaphors are complicated. We use internal mental metaphors to shape our understanding of reality all the time. Uh, cognitive metaphors. And so when we talk about metaphors for the church, it's not simply a literary phenomenon. We want to bring our cognition, our understandings of church to Scripture here, and we want our understandings of church to be enriched by the Bible's metaphors and understandings so that we might operate and function on a different cognitive understanding of what the church really is than perhaps we do in the moment. And so Paul does that. He uses these several metaphors, and we've, we've mm-hmm. talked about them as we've gone through this, but it'd be good to, to revisit these as we go through. What are some of the metaphors that Paul uses to help us understand the breadth and the scope of the church uh, in his day and in ours? Well, let's recap the four major metaphors, the ones which he develops most fully. And the first of those would be a metaphor that he uses earlier in the Corinthian correspondence, in Romans the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. And we almost can intuit some of what that means, right? To be the body of Christ means that we are all part of one project. We're contributing to it in in different ways, and we're related to one another as body parts are related to one another in a single human body. So it's communicating some really important ideas to us Paul uses the metaphor in Ephesians uh, in chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1 in verses 22 and 23, chapter 2, verse 16, and chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, as well as joined with the bridal metaphor in chapter 5, verses 29 through 30. So he uses this one quite a lot in Ephesians and in different ways in the different contexts. But in chapter 4, verses 1 1 through 16, where he develops it more fully, he's uh, using it to explore relationships among members. And he's especially interested in the role of these ministers of the word, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, and how they function. He's anxious that church members appreciate and honor these ministers of the word for their important function among them. And it's a unifying function. He actually elaborates the body metaphor. He extends it here. And these ministers of the word are connective tissue, ligaments and tendons that unify the body and bring unity to the human body. And and so he spends a good deal of time here with this. He also saw another new feature, that Christ is now the head. And so not only is the body metaphor used to explore relationships among members, but it's also to explore our cohesion to the head, 
are we being loyal to the head, the one that brings power and uh, resources to the body and helps the body grow? Are we honoring the head of the body? Are we obeying the head of the body? The second major metaphor is the church as the temple of God. And the principal place, the place in Ephesians where it's used, is at the end of chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. And you'll recall that he is celebrating the church. I mean, Paul is so excited about the church. And we, it takes us a little work, I think, to live into his excitement. But he's been telling us in chapter 2 that Christ dies on the cross to bring Jews and Gentiles together in the church, to give them shared access to the Father in heaven. And for him, this is at the heart of the mystery of the gospel. Can you believe it, Paul says? The church is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Can this possibly be? What a wondrous act of God's grace this is. Takes us a little while to work our way into that, begin to hear the lilt in Paul's voice as he does that. But he now celebrates that church through a temple, building temple metaphor at the end of chapter 2. And he talks about it as built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And by being built, he's talking about the church members as the building materials in the temple. Built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also, you Gentiles, you Jews, are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. So these Gentiles who were once excluded from the temple in Jerusalem by that balustrade or that fence, uh, that fence has been knocked down and demolished by Christ's work on the cross, and now they become the temple in which God is worshipped. So a beautiful metaphor there. So the first one is the church's body. The second one, the church's temple. When I'm picturing this body, we all are parts of that body. We're called to be parts of the body. A body works best if all the parts are working together. And if a part is separated from the body, it's neither good for that part nor for the body. And so God wants his people to be together and working together. And that, that beautiful picture of the, of the temple being built together uh, goes into that as well. What about the third metaphor? Uh, the third metaphor is the church is the bride of Christ. And we've looked at this one. It's such an intimate portrait of the relationship between Christ and the church. Christ isn't just the groom. He is that, but he's the bride price. Uh, he's the best man in giving the bride away to himself. He's the... He takes the role of preparing and bathing the bride for the marriage ceremony. He is everything to this bride. He's the one who speaks the word of promise on and on. All the elements and roles of the ancient wedding service are concentrated in, in Jesus, teaching us the lesson that he's everything to his church. But the, the metaphor also teaches about the, the close, intimate relationship that God wishes to have with with his church, with believers. So Paul is using different metaphors to, to tease out different elements, different aspects. And here Absolutely. we are in, in one sentence saying that the church is the bride of Christ, but then in the next, Paul uses this metaphor of, of, of the church as a militia. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And it's, it's difficult to take the, a bride and militia and, <laughs> and, and run is. them together. But he's, they're just different elements. Yes. Talk about the militia for a moment. Yeah, so the army of the Lord, the, the militia of Christ, uh, chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. We spent our last two lessons studying that, that passage. But uh, it, too, serves as a, a final culminating image of the church, the church militant, if you will. Now, it's militant in a special way, isn't it? Because right at the heart of that passage, Paul tells us that we are to put on our feet that which will help us to proclaim the gospel of peace. So it's a peace-waging army. It's not a conventional army using conventional weapons. It is a peace-waging army using the wonderful assets of God's presence and, and prayer and kindness and gentleness to one another and all those kinds of weapons in waging peace. But it does portray the energetic engagement that's required of us as disciples in the battle as we become combatants in the great controversy, albeit in the interest of waging peace. Uh, The passage represents a great call to arms and encourages us that God has provisioned us with all we need, with the right weapons, with his presence, and we will be part of a triumphant victory at the end. You know, that theme of unity that, that Paul has woven through this book, we have just a, just a couple of minutes left. I wonder if you might dwell on that theme of unity for sure. just a moment. We're tying everything together here. And if there is someone who's listening to this and, and struggling with seeing how they fit in and Maybe there's some things they're concerned about. How, how could we bring this whole thing together for, for that person who wants to be encouraged, who wants to be uplifted, who, who wants to feel a part of what God is doing? So this is the fast overflight. The fast Chapter overflight. 1, verses 9 and 10, God's grand plan, unite everything in Christ. We, we get to Christ's exaltation over the powers. He's given to the church as the one over all things. What Christ chooses to do on the cross, chapter 2, is to join Jews and Gentiles together. And through this grand diversity, chapter 3, verse 10, witness to the powers that God's plan to unite everything is underway. And then in chapters 4 and 5, we have detailed instructions of how to behave within the Christian congregations in the Christian family in ways that unify and draw once together. All of that is celebrated in the unity of an army. An army requires unity, chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. So I would hope that those watching us, Eric, would feel a poignant, pathos-filled call from Jesus Christ himself to join the army, to become part of the body, to become part of the building, to be part of the bride of Christ, there is a place for you in God's church. It is a wondrous, wondrous place of cosmic significance. Uh, I would encourage each person listening us, to us to reinvest themselves in church or join, join in the church. It is the place to be. It is where the action is. Amen. John, thank you so much for leading us through this study over the course of the last 14 weeks. And thank you for joining us on this journey as well. We trust and pray that it has been a blessing to you. It most certainly has been to us. May God bless you, and we look forward to seeing you again next week here on Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written.